This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. So this morning, we are uh, continuing our series in the, in the book of Judges. We actually have uh, two weeks left. Uh, so we are this week uh, going to spend some time uh, with a judge that, that most of you have not heard of. It's a guy named Jephthah. Uh, and there's probably good reason you've not heard of him. Uh, this is not a story that we tell very often, and there's a lot of reasons uh, we don't tell this story. Uh, but it really is, as you'll see in a moment, uh, an exercise in imperfection, an exercise in failure, an exercise in turning from God uh, to our own way, uh, and, and the result of those choices. And especially if we looked at leadership this summer, leadership uh, as something that we want to aspire to do. Sometimes we'll learn again today, uh, part of leadership is actually uh, choosing to not do the things uh, that cause great harm. And we'll see that as we dive into Jephthah's story uh, today. Uh, and then next week, we'll talk about Samson. And so if you know, um, if you know any of the judges, you might, you might be familiar with Samson or Samson's story, or at least the, the children's version of Samson's story. Uh, we'll close with that next week. Uh, and we'll spend a lot of time actually looking not just at Samson as a, as a person, as a leader, but at Samson's mom and how she prepared him for his life of leadership and what that looks like and the results uh, of that preparation. And so we'll spend some time there uh, next Sunday, especially as we approach VBS and what we're doing alongside of our children uh, to help raise them up in the faith. And so we'll have a good chance to close the series then. And then in August, if you are ready to be done with Judges, if you're tired of these stories, we're going to shift gears. We're going to turn right. Uh, we're doing a new series uh, in August called Now Streaming, uh, God in the Digital World. Uh, we're looking at the, way that God, the ways that God shows up in all sorts of media, uh, from movies to TV shows to music uh, to art and digital art in particular. And so we'll spend some time uh, for four weeks in August uh, diving into to that series. And so uh, it will feel very different than Judges, I promise you. <laughs> so uh, not quite as deep, not quite as dark in that space, but it's, uh, it's a good series. We'll be picking that up in August. So I encourage you, uh, if you've been ready to get out of this, we'll be, we'll be coming out of it very soon. Uh, but, but hopefully this summer, you've had a chance to learn some stories uh, from the Old Testament, stories of, of Israel, stories of God's faithfulness, uh, especially when God's people were unfaithful and how God uh, raises up leaders, raises up judges uh, to lead people back to God. And that really has been our thrust all summer long about drawing people back to God, to, to be in obedience to God so they might experience a new life, new peace, new hope uh, in those spaces. Um, but this morning we're going to go to Jephthah. And so I, I will warn you again, um, it is not an easy story. Uh, we're going to only deal with a very small piece of it. Uh, but I'm going to invite you, if you will, to turn with me to Judges chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 29 uh, through 35. And the words will be on the screens behind me as well today. So this is Judges 11, uh, the story of Jephthah. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord uh, came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. He passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return victorious from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He inflicted a massive defeat on them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 towns. And as far as Abel Karamim, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. 
And there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. She was his only child. He had no son or daughter except her. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. This is indeed the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So here's the story. Uh, Jephthah, uh, if you read back a few verses, Jephthah is uh, actually the child uh, of child of Gilead that uh, was an Ill- illegitimate child. He was not actually uh, of his mom. He was of um, someone else. And so when uh, he was raised up, he was raised with bro- brothers that were legitimate. And when he uh, went, uh, came of age, they actually kicked him out of the house. And they said, we want nothing to do with you anymore. And so they kicked him out and he began to journey and wander. And he found, as it says in scripture, a band of wanderers. And they wandered around to try to figure out what it meant to live this life as someone outside of a family, outside of a home. And he began to, to learn uh, tricks of the trade in these places. And he began to go to battle and war and learned uh, what it means to be raised up as a warrior, as an outsider. And as he did this, he came back and eventually finds a place among the Israelites where they uh, lift him into leadership. And he uh, begins to fight on their behalf and ultimately... Uh, comes into this place where as they are trying to figure out what to do next, uh, they send him or he goes on behalf of that people uh, into battle. And the very first verse that we read today uh, says this. It says, uh, verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord uh, came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. So here's Jephthah, prepared to lead, and the very first thing I want you to know is, notice is that the Spirit of God is upon him. This is not someone who is completely outside of God's realm, completely outside of God's will, completely outside of God's personhood. And so when we read the rest of the story, see, one thing that I think we often do is we like to separate uh, those that do things that really make no sense, those that do things that are evil, those that, that pursue things that, that we find to be disobedient to God's will. And in fact, I would say this is. When Jephthah comes back, God never tells him, I need you to sacrifice something to me. This is Jephthah's bargaining. Jephthah says, I'll do this for you. He bargains with God. He says, God, if you'll do this one thing for me and give me what I want, power, authority, victory, then I'll do this thing for you. And, and often we try to separate them. We say that that is somebody else, somebody from a historical past or somebody outside these places. And yet Jephthah has the Spirit of God upon him. Jephthah is someone who is connected to God, who knows God, who's in the midst of God's people. And I think that's important for us to recognize when we enter this story is that Jephthah, uh, much like us, might have started in a place connected to God. This is not a separate story. In fact, when I think about what it means to bargain with God, I have many conversations with people who have done that very thing who have found something that they wanted uh, very badly, and they have said to God, God, if you will do just this one thing for me, then I will do this thing for you. And sometimes the thing that we offer to God is actually not something God desires. Now, a fun version of that story is I have a friend uh, who went skiing one time with her family, and unbeknownst to her, she was not a great skier. She found herself at the top of a double black diamond. And she said said this prayer. She said, God, if you get me down this double black diamond in one piece— I will never ski again. And sure enough, she has never skied again. (laughs) She got down. 
Now, I'm not saying that that was God's desire for her. I don't think it's God's desire that she never skied again. Now, maybe in her case it was, but that's a whole other story. But it was that, that she made this deal with God. She offered something to God that God may never actually have wanted because she wanted something for herself. And many of us know what that's like. There's things that we aspire to, things that we desire, things that we want for ourselves. And we say, God, God, if you will just give me this relationship, or God, if you'll just give me this job, or God, if you'll just give me this home or this neighborhood or this community, God, I'll do this thing for you. I'll go to church on Sundays, or I'll, you know, do whatever it may be. You list off the things that we're willing to offer to sacrifice. And sometimes the very thing we're willing to sacrifice actually keeps us from the things God desires for us. In this case, Jephthah, and this could be an entire sermon unto itself, uh, chooses to sacrifice his very family for his own ambition and success. He gives away his child so that he might experience the victory, the power, the authority that he wants for himself in that place. And again, we could stop there, and for many of us, that's actually all the challenge we need today, to be reminded that that's actually not God's desire. God is not asking any of us to give away our only family, our very family, for the sake of our ambition, success, pride, ego, whatever it may be. God's desire is for something different. But what I want to get from this very first section is this, and that is that suffering, failure, falling, sin, brokenness happens to all people. This is not something that happens to other people. It's not something that happens to evil people or to people that are not like me or people that don't look like me or don't have families like mine or don't have churches like ours. Suffering, brokenness, failure, sin, falling happens to all of us. Um, There are two books that I've been reading uh, this summer that I would recommend to you, both of them. One's by a guy named Richard Rohr. Uh, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan. Uh, He's a monk, a teacher. Uh, They call him Father Richard. Uh, if you uh, watch Oprah's like, online network, uh, he was on uh, Soul Sunday like two months ago. I know you were all here, so you didn't see it, but if you go back online and stream it, uh, he was on Oprah. He's well-known right now for a new book called Universal Christ, uh, but he wrote a book called Falling Upward. In, the, in this book, he explored this very thing about what it means for us as God's people even that we experience failure, falling, sin, brokenness. And as a result... God actually uses those things to draw us into God's grace. This is what he says. He says this, it is not that suffering or failure might happen or that it will only happen to you if you are bad, which is what religious people often think, or that it will happen to the unfortunate or to a few in other places, or that you somehow by cleverness or righteousness can avoid it. No, it will happen. And to you, losing, failing, falling, sin, and the suffering that comes from those experiences. One of the things that anytime we talk about failure or falling or brokenness or sin, whether it's ours or someone else's, is that we have to recognize that we are part of that story. In 1 John, as John talks about um, actually, I'm going to start with Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, as Matthew, as Matthew talks about, as Jesus talks about what this means for us, he talks about this idea of, of what it means to be righteous and unrighteous. And he says this, this is Matthew 5, uh, 44 through 45. Jesus says, but I say to you, I love your enemies and pray for those uh, who persecute you. 
so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Both good and evil, righteous, unrighteous, experience the troubles of this world. That is true. Our war continues, talks about Romans. He says this. He says, you cannot avoid sin or mistake anyway. Romans 5, verse 12. We'll come into that in a minute. But if you try to fervently, it often creates even worse problems. Now, this is the verse he was referencing where in Romans, Paul writes about sin. He says, therefore, uh, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. And this is a story for all of us. And Jesus says this, Aurora says this, he says, Jesus also tells us there are two groups who are very good at trying to deny or avoid this humiliating surprise, failing, falling, suffering. Those who are very rich and those who are very religious. <laughs> he says, we try to avoid this and run from this as if we can somehow by our cleverness or our intelligence or our extreme giftedness somehow avoid the things that everyone else in this world has to deal with. And so he says, once we come to a place where we can accept the fact that we're going to go through these challenges, that we're going to experience these things, that we ourselves are going to fall away from God, hopefully not as bad as Jephthah, but that we ourselves will turn from God. He says, this is what you do. There's two things you have to do. The first is that as we seek to become a different, a new creation, a new kind of person, is simply this. We have to admit and confess where we have fallen. And this is straight from Scripture. First John says this, verse chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He says, If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance, confession, admitting failure, admitting we have a problem or a challenge is the first step that any of us have to take to accept that we too are part of this problem. That we too are fallen, that we too fail, that we too fall short. And when we get there, we turn from that. That's what it's called repentance. We turn away from that. We say, you know, God, like I messed up. God, I mess up too. God, I also choose things that keep me from your will. I choose things that are not actually your desire for me. You know, and at any point in this thing, and what drives me crazy about this passage in Judges is that when Jephthah comes back, all I want him to do is stop for a minute. I want him to see his daughter come out of his house and say, you know what? I actually made a mistake. That's a promise that was not mine to offer, and it was a promise that I should never have made. This is not what you wanted, God. It's what I wanted. And if I could just stop right now, and I'll take whatever consequence Whatever, whatever that I need to take for my mistake to protect my family, protect your people. That's not what he does. In fact, he doubles down on it. And not only does he say, does he not say it was my mistake, he says, daughter, like, basically, why are you causing me grief? First of all, the daughter had nothing to do with his grief. <laughs> and we do that all the time, though, right? We blame other people for our mistakes, we start to you know, blame those that, that we cause harm to. We say, why are you causing me such grief? Why did you do this to me? When really he was the one that did it to her. And when we, again, we do this. And Jesus says, I've got a promise that I have to keep. No, you don't. He says, you messed up. Well, Roar says, this is one of the challenges of ego. And this is what he says about ego. 
He says the human ego prefers anything or just about anything to falling or changing or dying. The ego is that part of you that loves the status quo uh, even when it's not working. Ego is a part of you that loves the status quo even when it's not working. Even when we are doing things that we know are going to fail and not work, we get so caught up in ourselves and preserving ourselves and our self-image and, and who we are that we actually will continue to do the very thing that causes harm simply because we do not want to change. Which brings us to the second point. So the first point is to admit, to confess. The second one is this, that once we admit, confess, when we recognize that we are part of this, that we participate in this, we've got to stop doing uh, the very thing that causes destruction. Just stop doing the destructive thing. Uh, Peter Drucker, who's a management uh, guru, writes a lot about leadership, says this. says, we spend a lot of time teaching leaders what to do. We don't spend enough time teaching leaders what to stop. Half the leaders I have met don't need to learn what to do. They need to learn what to stop. Uh, Marshall Goldsmith, who wrote a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, Another one I'd recommend, it's, it's not a Christian book, but it's a, a book about how we change and change habits in our own lives, uh, says this. It says, likewise, the recognition and reward systems in most organizations are totally geared to acknowledge the doing of something. We get credit for doing something good. We rarely get credit for ceasing to do something bad. Yet they are flip sides of the same coin. For Jephthah, he knew he would get credit for victory. He knew he would get credit for overcoming the Ammonites. He would be remembered in history as this great victorious leader that set Israel free. But all he had to do was stop the very thing that would cause harm. Uh, Goldsmith, in his book, uh, tells a story of a guy named Gordon Levin. Does anybody know Gordon Levin? Know that name? Uh, Levin is the uh, former CEO of Time Warner, a 1990s into early 2000s, and is credited, really, with a cable revolution. Levin led Tom Warner to become this uh, multimedia a giant moving out of some, uh, some media into other uh, TV cable media, was credited with a vision for HBO and what that became, had this incredible vision for Tom Warner, grew them, helped them grow in the, in the early 90s to, or early to late 90s. And then in 2000, Levin made what some call was the greatest a corporate mistake in history. Levin took Tom Warner and orchestrated a merger with a little upstart company called AOL. You guys know AOL? Does anybody, can anybody hear like the, the ding, ding, ding in your head when you hear AOL? AOL at the time, in 2000, was the fastest growing, the biggest market share of internet in the, in the country, and Levin thought it would be great to take Time Warner, this multimedia giant, and to connect them to AOL, and they went through what at the time was the largest merger in U.S. history. Uh, if you know the rest of that story, you know that Time Warner, uh, after that merger, lost 80% of its stock value. Uh, Levin lost uh, most of his own personal wealth, his reputation. He lost all the good that he had built for that time uh, because he moved forward with a, with a merger that didn't work. He made a mistake. And what uh, Goldsmith says is if, if you can just play this thing out, you wonder if at any point in this process, Levin recognized that this might not go right that the decisions in the past he was leading this company on might actually turn south for them and it may not, may not become the very thing he hoped to become. And at one point, the momentum became too much for him to stop it and overcome it. He says, what would have happened if Levin had stopped it midstream and said, we're not going forward with this? He says, the fascinating thing about how we recognize leaders 
is he would never have gotten credit for stopping that merger. He would never have held a press conference. He would never have made this big thing where everybody was stood up and applauded, this, this stopping what turned into a great disaster. He would never have been recognized for that, gotten awards for that. And so he did something very bold, very audacious that turned into disaster. Because we recognize what we do, not what we stop doing. And I think that's one of the personal challenges that we have to ask ourselves. You know, there's two questions I actually want to close with this morning, kind of lead us to this last little bit of the sermon. And they're two simple questions. The first is this. You know, are there things in your life right now that you need to recognize, admit, and confess our losses, sins, failings, fallings. So what does this mean for you? Are you living in places? Are you doing things? Are there practices you're engaging in that actually are keeping you from God? And the second part of that is, are there things in your life as you recognize that that you simply need to stop doing? When Goldsmith applies this personally to our own lives, he talks about practices we have. He says, you know, one thing that he finds, he coaches corporate executives this is one thing that I find with corporate executives is sometimes what they need to do is they need to be nice to people. <laughs> They're just not good at it. And so I start coaching them in that. And, I, and I, what I say to them is that, that sometimes being nice is less about the things you can add. When I start adding all these things to their plate, like, you know, just say please and thank you. Or I say, you know, just, you know, do these, like, compliment somebody. So these basic things, they actually will be paralyzed because they're like, I can't do any more things. So he says he stopped coaching them to add things to his plate. He actually started coaching most of them to just stop being jerks. <laughs> he says, just stop being mean to people. He says, I just like, I don't even need you to compliment folks. Just like stop tearing them down. Like if you could just stop some things, you would go a long way, <coughs> excuse me, a long way to living a closer to the ways that would look like good relationship. Because if you want to be a good listener, one of the best ways to be a good listener, at least to start, is simply to stop talking. If you'll just stop talking, you can actually move closer to being a listener. And then for, so for many of us, it's not always about the things that we add on that we move closer to. For many of us, part of what we simply have to do is stop the things that are leading us away from God. What are those habits? What are those practices? What are the things that you do that if you could just stop a few things in your life, in your rhythm, that would actually create space for God to move in some powerful ways? What would that look like? And so what are those things for you? Where is God calling you to turn away from sin, to turn away from brokenness, and turn toward a new, a new way, a new practice? I'm gonna pray for us in a moment. It's not a prayer. I'm gonna give us a moment just to, just to sit in, in quiet. I want you to ask yourself in that quiet, uh, what is God uh, asking you to recognize in your own life today? And where might God be leading you to a place of change? Let's pray.